Welcome, adventurers! This is MuseCast 14, your podcast for everything roleplay in the world of Eorzea and in the Far East. Oh man, are we going to have to change our intro now? <laughs> oh, maybe? I don't know. I like the way that that just Eorzea sounds, you know? Aww. <laughs> what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know, but we're going to cover the Far East, at least. Yes. Anyway, I'm your co-host, Remix Sakura. And I'm your co-host, Emmy. And after diving deep into Alamigo, we're going to be moving across the world into the other part of Hydaelyn that we got to explore for the first time in Stormblood. That is the Far East. Hingashi, Othard, the Ruby Sea. It's a lot of places to cover. Yeah. We're thinking this is going to be another multi-part series. <laughs> yeah, it seems like it will be, just because of all the different territories that we're going to cover, and, you know, all the characters that we're going to talk about later on. Yeah, and much like Alamigo, the Far East has been popular with roleplayers for some time, but now there's a lot more content to work with, and a lot more in-depth info. Which is great. Man, wouldn't it be nice if we got like some some sort of Doman roleplayer or Far Eastern roleplayer to come on the show and talk? Hmm. Are you out there? Maybe. Are you listening? <laughs> <laughs> so the Far East, of course, is home to the Aura, who have begun to migrate to Eorzea as of late, largely to escape the Garlean Empire. Now, as far as the racial distribution of the Far East, I think that we see a lot of Midlanders, largely with dark hair, but you also see Hellsguard Brugadin and two new beast races, the Lupin and the Namazu. And surprisingly, they seem to have integrated into Far Eastern society and basically live among all the others. Yeah, you would think that given their appearance, they might end up being beast <laughs> tribes, you know? Yeah. But... Just the way that they've incorporated themselves, they're walking around, they're talking to people, and they are not interacting with primarily themselves. They are talking to the Midlanders and the Aura and all these other different groups as opposed to interacting with themselves and other beast tribes. I would like to see them as beast tribes, but honestly, like I don't think that they will end up being beast tribes. Yeah. I would vote for the Kojin as a future beast tribe. Yeah. Maybe the Ananta too. Kojin and Ananta I can definitely see as becoming beast tribes, especially yeah. because both of them were involved with like the primal summonings in the main scenario. Yeah, they both kind of follow the established convention for beast tribes. That being that, oh, these members are good and those other guys over there are not good <laughs> and they're color coded so you know the difference. <laughs> Or they're misled in the case of the Ananta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but just how, like, the blue Amalja were the good guys and the red Amalja were the bad guys. Oh, the blue Kojin are the good guys and the red are the bad. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We could we could do an entire episode on just beast tribes. Maybe that's a future thing. Yeah, I think we probably will. But that just opens up even more options. Mm-hmm. If you want to roleplay a Lupin, go ahead. So it's really nice to see. And as we said... All of these different races seem to have assimilated under a single Far Eastern culture and also naming convention, which is based on the ancient Hingan language, which is analogous basically to Japanese. And that's different than what you see in Eorzea. 
Right. When you're in Eorzea, you end up seeing things between the races that are different. Like your Lalafell name is going to be different from your Rukadin name, which is going to be different from your Huron name. And even the city-states themselves seem to have very, very distinct cultures. Whereas there's a good amount of blending in between aspects of the different Far Eastern states. Yeah, that's very true. I would say maybe the exception being the Zela and the Steppe, who have remained largely isolated and kept their old ways. But yeah, there's a lot of Japanese names going around, but also occasionally more Chinese-sounding names in the region of Yansha. And, well, if you do fishing, <laughs> you learn a lot more names of things. And I never believed people before when they said that there was a lot of lore in fish, but there actually is. Really? I need to do the fishing quest then. <laughs> yeah, earlier this week, I got all my gatherers 70. Yeah, so we know from the lore book that migration of Aura specifically is fairly new to Eorzea. But we know that Aura are very, very popular in RP, both Ran and Zela. So if you're going this route, just be aware that Aura in Eorzea are still a fairly recent development and are not terribly common. So you want to have a good reason why your character ended up migrating. It could be as simple as, well, they were a doman escaping the occupation, but did they come with Yugiri's group? We actually find out in some side quests that there's almost like this little doma population that's now living in Revenant's Toll. There is a small population of Aura that did migrate to Revenant's Toll, but that only accounts for a small, small, small amount of people. And yeah. you have to keep in mind that Yugiri herself seems to be an anomaly because she didn't even come from Doma. She is from a little village that is located in the Ruby Sea. Yeah, originally. Additionally, when you talk about the Ara migrating, the people who are in Doma might have been affected. But what about the people in like the Azim Steppe? There are a bunch of Zela over there. But the whole idea of, like, the Garleans attacking didn't really come into play until very, very recently. Yeah, you have to wonder what would convince Azela to leave the steppe and come to Eorzea. That's only something that you can decide for yourself, but it's definitely something to keep in mind when you're character building. Right. Alternatively, you could just have a character that's Doman and they've grown up in Doma, and they lived in Doma, and Doma became liberated, and now, oh look... You know, here are some adventurers, now we can interact with them. But again, it's all up to you. Yeah. And something else to keep in mind is that Yugiri's group had a really, really hard time making their migration. They stopped off in a couple of other places first, in which they were rejected. Honestly, it seems like when they arrived in Vesper Bay, they were on their last legs and were about to starve to death if they weren't accepted and helped out by the Scions. So if your character wasn't part of that group, how did they end up making the journey? Because it's not an easy journey to make. And it's a long one. Yeah. But you definitely have options, including being a character that perhaps just stayed in Doma this entire time. So let's dive into Doma. Yeah, Doma itself actually is not quite as big as I had initially thought. Doma is primarily rural. It seems pretty small from what we know, but it's a nation that's located in the region of Yansha. I think that's how it's pronounced. At least that's what I remember in the main scenario, but it's based on Chinese from what I remember. Yeah, it uses pinyin Chinese, which is a way of romanizing Chinese characters into Latin characters. 
Yeah, Doma does seem pretty rural and pretty small, but you do get to see a little bit of what Doma once was by means of the ruins that are located within Yansha. Now, unfortunately, those ruins got destroyed by the Garleans following the rebellion of the Domans, and there's a bit of a long story behind that. Yeah. But it seems like, originally, it was a bit analogous to the city-states of Eorzea in that it was centered around a small city and a keep, Doma Castle, which is also ruined, (laughs) (laughs) but for a good cause. They're going to have a lot of rebuilding to do. Yeah, but it included that keep and then the surrounding rural countryside as well. Just like, for example, Ulda includes the city, then also Thanalan. Or Limsa has Limsa as the city and then... Lenosha as yeah. as the outlying yeah. region that they pretty much control. Exactly. Now, unfortunately, Doma was under occupation by the Garleans, and it stayed that way for like 20 years. And what the Garleans decided to do is they kept the sovereign of Cayenne, who was previously leader of Doma before the Garleans came in, and they left him as a figurehead. Now, I think this might have been a mistake because... Kayan didn't like this, a lot of the Domans didn't like this, and eventually they decided to rebel, which did not work, and as a result, Kayan ended up dying. Mm-hmm. I think after that, though, the Garleans learned their lesson and decided to use one of the Domans' own to rule, similar like what they did in Alamigo. But, like in Alamigo, how Fordola and the Skulls ended up controlling it, they decided to use somebody who had been educated in a Garlean fashion, namely their Visuroi Yotsuyu. So they decided mm-hmm. to find somebody who they knew would be loyal to the Garleans. Unfortunately, in doing so, and in Yotsuyu selling out the Domans to the Garleans, nobody really likes her. And I feel like that sort of stresses this whole idea of honor being a very, very highly valued thing in Doman society. You know, you betray your own people, you are the scum of the earth, even if you technically are in a high place. On the other hand, Kayan's son, Hien, decided that he was going to run off to the Azim Steppe and try and figure out if the Domans really, really want to be liberated. But when Hien came back, the family lineage, I think, had people be more easily willing to stand behind him. Yeah. When he returned. Yeah, people really did a 180 on their attitude from basically having this PTSD, Stockholm Syndrome kind of attitude that we cannot stand up or else we'll all be killed, which was based on a lot of really painful life experience, to being very, very motivated once Hien showed up. It just shows that in their society, that sort of nobility and lineage really meant a lot to them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And Hien basically went to the steppe to escape after the big bad battle. Fortunately, he made friends with the Mole tribe who helped him get back to health and essentially survive up until we go and find him again. Now, the thing to keep in mind about the Doan Rebellion is that to us as players, it feels like it happened a long time ago because it was all the way back in patch 2.2 that Yugiri and Ko first show up in Eorzea. However, we are unfortunately, canonically, according to Koji Fox and Co., currently in the longest year ever, the time bubble year. <laughs> All of this, technically speaking, happened in the same year. 
So you have to remember that the rebellion was fairly recent. Cayenne has not been dead for long. Hien has not been in the steppe for that long. Even though to us, it was essentially years ago. Yeah, things get a little bit confusing, but I can understand why they did that. Because you end up having people who just started the game right now. They are in a Realm Reborn as of right now. And so when they go through and they encounter people who have liberated Doma, you know, it's it's different time frames. It makes sort of sense that it all happens pretty quickly. At the same time, you have seasonal events where, for example, the Rising celebrates the anniversary of the Calamity. And so when you are celebrating the anniversary of the Calamity, you don't want to have one person going there and being told, oh, it's been six years since the Calamity. And then the next person comes in, oh, it's been five years since the Calamity. It's sort of nice to have that consistency across all players. And I'm sure it makes it easier for the dev team too. Yeah, that's the reasoning that they've stated for why they have to do this, to account for the real life situation of new players joining all the time. And it might make things a little bit confusing for us, but I can definitely see the reasoning behind it. They have to deal with the sort of real life aspects of this being their job, trying to satisfy all the players. <laughs> Whereas we do not. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we wanted to turn to the lore book for a little bit more detail on Doma. And there's not a whole lot as yet, because of course, it was published before we got to Stormblood. And I have the feeling that while some details were nailed down, such as the culture of the Aura and the naming conventions and a couple of place names. They wanted to keep things kind of open-ended as they were finalizing the details of the Stormblood story. I kind of think that they might have had the story all set in stone, but they just didn't want to spoil everything about where we yeah. were going and all that we would encounter. Yeah, but reviewing it again, I noticed a couple of interesting things that seem to corroborate what we know now. For example, with the Rayan, as part of Far Eastern society, they don't actually have surnames or last names or family names unless they are part of a noble or warrior class. In a lot of feudal societies such as medieval Europe, this was also true. People didn't have last names traditionally if they were on the bottom rung of society. So if they end up acquiring them by some miracle of social mobility, which is not that common, they often get to pick their own last names. For example, when Yugiri became a ninja in service to the monarch of Doma instead of just an average girl from the little village of Suinosato, she got to pick a name Yugiri Mistwalker. Oh, that's pretty cool sounding, but that's not her family name. When we meet her parents, they don't seem to have any family name. Although we do see a little bit of a naming trend that might be the case. We see that Yugiri's mom has a similar syllable in her name. Where you have Yugiri, we have Yunagi is her mother. And so it could be that maybe familial patterns with syllables are a way that people are able to pass down a family name from one generation to another. You kind of see that with Dune's folk Lalafell, actually, with Nanamo and her mother Nanasha. Where yeah. the last names are based on naming conventions or for Plainsfolk Lalafell, sometimes it's even chosen by the Lalafell themselves. So these patterns of using syllables from generation to generation might be a thing that you can keep in mind when you're making your own character. Yeah, for sure. And if they do end up being, for example, a warrior, because you're an adventurer after all, keep in mind that they did often get to choose their own surnames. The trend, of course, being a little bit gendered, 
that men would pick kind of badass sounding names and women would get kind of dainty, flowery nature kind of names. But place names are also perfectly valid. You don't necessarily have to go with these gender stereotypes. I know that they might be more valid in world, but I think that you have the freedom. Just keep in mind that that's the most common socially accepted thing. Yeah. And heck, if you don't like any of those options, then you can always just name your character whatever you want. And then just figure out some kind of way where it's like the nickname that they use or it's whatever they decide to call themselves. Maybe it's an alias to keep their real identity a secret. I know one particular character, like people say he's a Mikote and his real name is whatever, but everybody just calls him Natsuki because he's a giant weeb and loves the Far East. And so everybody just calls him Natsuki instead. <laughs> oh, I know that kitty. <laughs> Can confirm. Yeah, that was the reasoning that I sort of retroactively put in place for my main character, Natsuki, because when I started the game, I literally had zero idea about lore. I didn't know about Keeper of the Moon naming conventions. I had no idea about anything, basically. It's hard to believe that there was such a time. <laughs> but I retroactively decided, yeah, he just was really fascinated with the Far East as a young adventurer, much like another really interesting character that we know. Kagome Vulazur, who's actually an Elizin and has a real birth name <laughs> that is, you know, perfectly Elizin sounding. It's Elizin sounding, but it's very unfortunate. Yeah. It's like shit Louise. If you Shadow were, Louise. Yeah, yeah. Shit Louise if you translate it. And, <laughs> you know, obviously she did not like that name that her parents gave her. And so she became obsessed with Doma. And the Far East, even if it's a very, very disillusioned vision of it. A very, very exaggerated portrayal. And she's as... like, I'm going to go give myself a Far Eastern name. So now I'm Kagome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's keeping in line with the ways of the Crucible. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty extreme, but then again, they are too. So basically, bottom line, name your character whatever you want. If you want to follow lore conventions, by all means do. If you want to give them some other crazy name, you can do that too. Yeah. I like to say, do whatever you want, but have a reason for it. Yeah. I'm sure you can even explain things away. Like, even if you make brand name references, <laughs> you could probably do something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think that lore should be a guideline, but that at the end of the day, you should do what you have the most fun with. <laughs> yeah. It's a guideline, but it's not like an absolute set-in-stone rule. Totally. Now, let's move on across the Ruby Sea that we got to visit at least one small part of. That's the island nation of Hingashi. Yeah, Hingashi is, is the region itself. And the region is made up of two different islands, which are called Shishu, that's the smaller island. And then there's also Koshu, which is the bigger one. And on Shishu... That's where Kugane is. Kugane itself is the city, and then Hingashi is the nation. Yeah. On Koshu, we have the national capital, Bukyo, and that's apparently where they also grow the world's best sticky rice, I learned while crafting. Nice. <laughs> do we actually get to visit Bukyo? I don't think we do. Nope. It's mentioned offhand in a couple of quests, but if you look really close... You can see that the government of Hingashi, which is referred to as the Bakufu, is 
pretty closely analogous to what actually happened in Japan in the Meiji era. I don't know if you've watched Roroni Kenshin. I have not. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> aw, man. Yeah, basically what they had in that time was a shogunate, or essentially a military dictatorship. It was an amalgamation of warlords that all decided to ally themselves under a single most powerful head honcho warlord, though we don't know whether that person is called a shogun or something else, perhaps. But the best way to understand that, honestly, is to look at the real life. And I believe we hopefully will learn a little bit more in the future. But as it is, we've only visited the city of Kugane itself because it is the only open port. And Kugane itself has a more local government headed by a bugyo, which is like a local magistrate or governor or even a mayor, you could say. Okay, so both the bugyo and these other lords end up reporting to the bakufu, is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay, I see. And then the bugyo is the person who just rules over this particular town. Maybe in other towns there's a little bit of a different structure. It's some other kind of lord ruling over it, but... Basically, you have somebody somebody with some sort of authority over a given area, and then they report to our military dictator at the yeah. very top. Yeah, and it's because of this reason, and others, for example, that Kugane is the only open port city in a country that's largely otherwise isolated. That leads me to think that if you want the closest analog to real-life historical Japan, you should look at Hingashi. Because in Kugane, if you go around the different side quests, you see a lot of similarities to the kind of cultural and sociopolitical issues that they were dealing with at that time. Japan remained isolated from the rest of the world for a very, very long time. And then finally, they started to open up in small ways to the rest of the world because they wanted to modernize, take advantage of outside inventions, innovations, trade. But at the same time, they developed a very, very rich and unique culture that they wanted to preserve while also being able to borrow from the outside world. So there's this tension between the old and the new, the inside native culture and the outside culture. How do you balance those things out? There's going to be traditionalists and there's going to be modernizers, people that really want to cling strictly to the old ways. And there's people that want to go full on modern that may perhaps just want to abandon the old ways. There's going to be people in between, people that aren't sure. Yeah, I think what Kugane is doing right now is somewhere in the middle, where they allow for people to enter, they can trade, they'll host pretty much anybody and it's a neutral ground, but they do ask that people end up respecting their own culture. And so you end up with a bunch of people coming in to do business, you have some people who are, you know, great businessmen, you have some people who are maybe not so trustworthy. Well... You can't say that Lolaredo is not a great businessman. You just can't say that he's a good person. Yeah. <laughs> it's just people are going to go there for the sake of, of making money and they'll allow people in just as long as you don't break their laws or anything like that. Like, it'll be fine. But what that also means is because they're trying to preserve their own culture, it allows for all of these visitors to be able to come and embrace that culture that Kugane has. And so you wind up with characters who absolutely fall in love with the city. Like you have Tataru, who's like, I want to stay here after yeah. being there for so long. Yeah, she puts on a kimono and everything. <laughs> yeah, you just, she she integrates fairly well into the society, even though it's pretty obvious, like her, her 
traditional customs might be a little bit different, she still is willing to go ahead and try and adhere to that culture as best she can. Yeah. But relatively speaking, Kugane is overwhelmingly going to be the more liberal place in the rest of Hingashi because it is this open port city and this cultural exchange going on in many different directions. And one thing that will always bring people together, no matter what part of the world they live in, is the desire to make money. So you see not only the East Eldenar Trading Company, but a couple of other smaller Uldan merchants wearing the Oasis sets very, very clearly. They're from Ulda. And there's a really nice side quest also where you learn about an Uldan merchant establishing trade with even the Confederacy. Who are, well, I mean, they're nice people, but at the end of the day, they're kind of a gang. They're an extra legal entity. <laughs> but it's not like back at home, the Uldan merchants have particularly any scruples about who they're dealing with for the sake of trade. So why should it be any different in the Far East? They do what they need to do to skirt around the rules and interact with the Confederacy as long as they avoid, you know, having them come into the city where they'll automatically be arrested. <laughs> and they don't want to get, like, attacked by by any Garleans who are like, how dare yeah. you You say that these people are entities, that they're actually countries. You can't do that. Yeah, actually, part of Kugane being this ultimate neutral ground is, ho, oh, there's the Garlean embassy. There's just Garleans just wandering around the city with impunity out in the open. Yep, there are people from Garlemald walking around, but that's just sort of how Kugane works. Yeah, they've got to balance these things out. The Ruby Sea is another place that we'll get into on our next episode. Yeah, this episode seems like it's a little bit short, but that's because we have a lot of places that we wanted to cover. <laughs> so we decided we would yeah. divide it up into two different episodes. Yeah, the Far East is a big place, and each region really deserves its own special attention. Right. So that is all for today of Doma, Hingashi, and Kugane. Yeah, I guess then that means that it's time to move into our stories for the week. It is. So every week we give an account of something that has happened within the game, in character, out of character, in RP, out of RP. It really does not matter just because we love the game so very much. So would you like to begin or should I this time? Well, for the most part, after I finished the main scenario, got my main class to 70, finished Omega, it was time to get back to the true endgame, which includes roleplay, and we're planning a couple of roleplay events, and my other true endgame, Crafting and Gathering. <laughs> <laughs> but also something that I've had a lot of fun with. We mentioned that new people are still joining the game every day. And I've been playing for over three and a half years, since December 2013 almost for the entire life of the game. But recently, I also got my real-life spouse to join me. <laughs> Yay! Yeah, and we got his character onto Gilgamesh, actually, luckily, before it locked. <laughs> that is very nice. I remember you <laughs> yeah. were going through and you were trying to get all the main scenario and stuff done. Yeah, and he didn't use any kind of jump potion, has done all the main scenario and all the leveling, the old-fashioned way, which I'm very proud of. Well, this was his first time, wasn't it? Yeah, totally the first time. And he's just gotten to the Azim step, so he, honestly, he got through things way, way faster than I did. He's much more focused, mm -hmm. whereas I'm just like, side quests! Woo! Side quests! <laughs> 
But of course, I've been doing everything I can to make his experience as much fun as possible. And I know that there's a lot of trends lately towards taking newbies and just steamrolling them through piles and piles of old content just so you can get those sweet first-timer bonuses. Oh man, those bonuses. They're nice. And I don't think that that's necessarily the best way from the newbie's perspective. For example, Alexander is a super, super fun raid series. All of the fights are really great. Stories like, eh. But I've been taking him through every Alexander fight synced. And of course, I'll invite my free company and say, hey, we're going to do A6, A7, and it's going to be synced. And they're like, well, why are you doing it synced? And I'm like, well, because I want him to actually experience the fight as much as possible the way it was intended, because that's just fun. What fun is it to do a two-second face roll? The Warrior of Light came in, and he booped the the boss's <laughs> nose, and then the boss fell down and died. Yeah. That's how I see synced runs. Yeah, I mean, I had so much fun doing those fights. It's still like A8, it's still like the most fun fight I think that there ever is. And even though when you're overgeared and you sink down, the math is not going to make it quite the same, not quite as challenging as it once was. But still, when you're new or when you're introducing a new person to the game, try to reproduce as much as possible the same fun that you had when first doing these fights. Would you have had fun if someone just steamrolled you through it? I would have laughed. Not necessarily. <laughs> yeah. It's just not fun. It's not a challenge. You don't feel like you accomplished anything. But also, I think that he's pretty lucky because it's like, oh, I've got all this money. I've got this house. He, he just like, I make all of his gear HQ. I mean, he's really got it made. <laughs> yeah, really. He's set to go. Yeah. And of course, we did the ceremony of eternal bonding, which is nice. So anytime that like he dies and needs a raise, I just teleport right over. I'd be like, here, honey, I saved you. <laughs> Aw, you're so lucky. My waifu is not nearly as kind. He says, oh, you want gear? Okay, get me mats. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's been a lot of fun. But yeah, I do think that the veteran players have somewhat of a responsibility to take care of the newbies and not just milk them for their bonuses, but to try to cater their experience based on what would be the most fun. Maybe... We're not going to be doing Alexander every week like, you know, you and I used to do. But still, if you're only going to do it once, make it somewhat memorable. Yeah, make it feel like they've earned it. Yeah. I think that's a good idea to do, especially when somebody's working on their first character. Mm -hmm. Maybe on the alts, it's not quite as important. You can go ahead and steamroll through that. But the first time through, it's nice to take your time. Now, unfortunately, I did not take my time while I was doing some of the main scenario dungeons. Running through Alamigo, I was like, yeah, we're going to liberate Alamigo. It's going to be great. So we went through the Alamigo dungeon and we, we cleared it. It was great. We ended up fighting Shinryu after all this. Finished the main scenario. And I absolutely did love the main scenario. But I realized as I was going through during Expert Roulette, Alamigo has a lot of detail that you might not pick up on the first time. And so while I was running through the dungeon this past week, I realized that all of the NPCs that you see from right before you go in, you meet with the Alliance leaders and you talk to them and they're like, yeah, we're going to go help out all amigo. It's going to be great. 
and you go through the dungeon and you see behind all these little gates these skirmishes that are going on and in those skirmishes I guess they aren't really skirmishes they're battles but they're smaller fights in these smaller fights you see people like Raoban, you see people like Alphino and Alize, you see Lys, you see, you know, even the Order of the Twin Adder, you see Kanesena healing, you see Melvib, you see Temple Knights. Oh man. There's this, there's <laughs> this one part where you go through and it's just like a regular trash mob pull, but you realize that there's this Garlean cannon and it's Standing right next to it is this Ishgardian temple knight that's just standing there. You don't really know who it is. If you watch that fight that's going on, you see the Ishgardian knight saying, Ishgard remembers Warrior of Light. There's so much that you miss if you just run through it. And so I spent so much time in there just looking and seeing who was fighting at every single gate. And thankfully my party was very forgiving and they knew what I was trying to do. Once I started doing it, I was like, look, it's so-and-so. It's so great. And so if you get the chance to do All Amigo, take a look and see all the detail that's going on around because it's a really feel-good dungeon if you do that. Like, it's still a feel-good dungeon if you go through normally, but it's even more so if you go through and look and see who's there and who's fighting. Yeah, in the first kind of room when you're outside the castle, yeah, you see a lot of those little fights going on. And those little tiny speech bubbles from the NPCs in the background. It's really, really nice. I remember one in particular, even though I didn't get to see all the people you mentioned, I really want to take a much closer look now. I remember the Temple Knight. And I remember at one point inside the castle, there's a bunch of people shouting, Ulda, Ulda, They just Ulda. keep on shouting. And I'm like, and I'm like, Ulda, Ulda. Yeah. We were talking about this earlier, actually. And we could imagine, both of us can imagine my character Scoot just stopping and looking at these people who are cheering Ulda and he stops fighting and he just starts, you know, cheering with them. Ulda, Ulda. <laughs> and the rest of the party is like, Scoot, you're the tank. We need you to we need you to keep tanking. And he's like, yeah. Ulda, Ulda. <laughs> he should be fighting, totally but he, he just wants to show his support. <laughs> Yeah, I think that we should run it together one day and just take our sweet time. We should do like a role play version of this because all oh, this time yeah. I only go in with like people who just want to fight and they're just like, we need a tank for the insta kill. Yeah. And I'm just like, okay, so we need to do this. We should grab our crucible buddies and do do some fun dungeon stuff together. Oh yeah, in, in character runs are really nice. Or just like anybody on, on Aether. Yeah. Another dungeon... That's another good example of just stopping and smelling the roses is Kugane Castle. The outside especially is so pretty and the inside as well. But the last couple of times that I've run that dungeon, I've waited until the entire party is gone, gets their loot, I hit return, go back to the beginning and take as many screenshots as I can until I time out of the instance. Because, hey, if you were actually visiting Kugane Castle and you weren't, you know, having to fight all of these ninjas... Honestly, it's just a nice tourist location. It's pretty. There's this beautiful garden. Oh, man, I just want to sit here in the Zen garden and meditate. So maybe our theme for this week is stop and smell the roses. <laughs> that tends to be a recurring theme for this podcast. For sure. There's so much more to the game than just playing the video game, or just, so to speak. Or just getting through the main scenario for the sake of getting through the main scenario. Yeah, one thing that I realized I never did was go talk to NPCs in Little El Amigo as the liberation was starting or while it was going on. I should have done that too. 
Yeah, but there's a couple of quests that send you there, just optional side quests afterwards. And I realized everybody's dialogue has changed. And I'm like, that's really cool. But what would they have said in the middle of the fighting? Yeah, would it be the same? I want to know. I want to know. But I guess I'll have to wait till my next playthrough. So uh, thank the gods for all those alts. Yep. <laughs> I'm really glad we have alts for that reason. For sure. So thank you for joining us for the beginning of our coverage on the Far East. Next time, we'll travel to the Ruby Sea and the Ozium Steppe, and also talk about some other issues that may come up, especially for role players, when it comes to role playing within in-game cultures that clearly take their inspiration from real-life cultures. Yeah, that is a lot of things to talk about. But until then, you can always listen to more of our episodes on our website at www.musecastxiv.com. You can also find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Just look us up there and you'll find us. Or you can visit our Tumblr page at musecastxiv.tumblr.com. Yep, that's where you can find our whole back catalog, our coverage of El Amigo, and every other city, state of Eorzea. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff we've covered so far. Yeah. So if, yeah. if you're new, you can always catch up there. We also have a bunch of social media accounts, including one on Facebook. Just look up MusecastXIV there. Or you can find us on Twitter at MusecastXIV. And if you like what you heard and you want to support us in some way, you can always support us on one of our two donation sites. You can go to our Patreon, where among other things, for a monthly donation, you can get access to our episodes 24 hours before they actually come out. And you can get access to bonus content, all the things that we wanted to talk about but just did not get to. You can also donate to us one time on our PayPal, so to get to both of those, just go to our website and click on the blue buttons on the right side of the screen. They are very shiny. Yep. Every episode we accumulate new stuff that didn't quite make the cut. If you think our episodes are long... I mean, sheesh. You should see the stuff that we can't fit in. <laughs> There's a lot of it that's just accumulated, so... Yeah, and it grows with every new episode. <laughs> Indeed. As do the bloopers. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I would love to have somebody unlock audio content so we can just give them all of our, our bloopers that we've had. Yeah, and at $10 or more, you even get bonus episodes, and we've got a couple of ideas for that. For example, covering religion and spirituality. Yeah, there are a whole lot of different things. And now that we have the Far East and their perspectives on like creation and things like that, that would be so much fun to talk about. Yeah, something that anyone who's developing a character wants to decide. Where are they aligned? Which of the 12 or maybe some other faith do they follow? And we do, of course, have our Discord that you can join. Our Discord can be found on our website as well, so you can check out our website or you can go to our Tumblr and find it there. That's right above, actually, where the donation buttons are. Yeah, you can also find it on the contact page. Great way to chat with not only us, but our many, many active members. Yeah, if you have any lore questions, people would be glad to answer them. We talk about really all sorts of things. New things, old things. We've even mentioned some things from 1.0. Oh yeah, we have a lot of really, really smart people there. We do. And if you just want to talk about role-playing, we have role-play advice. Just all sorts of things that are role-play related. Yeah, I'm really proud and glad that it's become a nice little community. Indeed. But, Discord aside, we will see you again in two weeks to cover the rest of the Far East, as well as going in-depth into some of the characters that we've met in Stormblood or have gotten some extra development. So until then, take care, adventurers. Yep. See you next time. 
Thanks for listening to MuseCast 14. Tune in next time when we'll be discussing The Far East Part 2. Happy adventuring, and may you ever walk in the light of the crystal.